People of the internet, welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. Congratulations, you're in the right place. We've got an awesome episode this week. My guest is the one and only Annika Sila, and she and I are going to read through the entirety of the quintessential Harlan Ellison short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. We're going to read and discuss. It's going to be fucking awesome. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm really proud of it. I think it might be the best that we've had so far on the show. This is going to be a long episode. Usually when I record with my guests, we split it up into two episodes because we talk for so long. In this particular case, there wasn't really a good place to split this episode in half. So I decided just to release it all at once. We're going to present the whole thing. I am sure you're going to love it. And here we go. giant screen. I feel like I need to not sneeze. Like this I is mean, a sneeze guard. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to sneeze in this anyway. Like, oh, electronic. <laughs> you can if you want to. <laughs> you know what? I'm good. <laughs> That's uh, the technical term for that thing is sneeze guard. Is it really? No. Damn it. <laughs> I was like, that's terrible because there's so many holes in it. That doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, that'd be bad. It's a pop screen. It stops, uh, it stops that. See, that sounded very good. Did it? Yeah. Nice. Nice. Bit of a natural at this. <laughs> I have to say it, so cool. Yeah, well, let's let's get started. Let's introduce you, because you've never been here before. Uh, well, we yeah. should probably start with like a starting thing. Uh, yeah. I'm really bad at starting these. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Woo-hoo. Mercury. I'm Jesse Mercury. I'm here with Annika Sila, a comedian extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, comedian, female. I have a very deep voice. I feel like I need to specify that this is a lady speaking. <laughs> I, I prefer sultry. You have a very sultry, sultry voice. voice. Yeah. I uh, surprised a comedian uh, in the ladies' room uh, the other day, and I was like, sup? And she's like, I thought you were one of the local male comics. She's like, I thought you were Aaron Kirby. And I was like, oh, good. Wow. That is what I like to hear. So One time I ran into you with a friend, and as soon as you walked away, my friend, who is female, was like, she's got the sexiest voice I've ever heard. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, at least once a day, uh, I get mistaken for a guy on the phone. Really? Yeah, it's really bad. One time I was working. That at- happens to me once a day. <laughs> that happened. I was working at Eddie Bauer once and I like said hello to a customer that came in and he didn't see me. Uh-huh. He's like, yeah, what's up, man? And then I like stand up and he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, you don't, you don't look like a dude. And I was like, that's okay. You don't either. And I thought it was going to be funny. And it mostly he was like, okay, fuck you. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? That's fair. Has this been like a thing in your life that has been a thing just having a deep voice uh yeah is that- i think i'm more insecure about it than other people but i'm people- not insecure about it at all <laughs> <laughs> exactly like yeah. most people are like you sound like a human person and i'm like i sound like a monster <laughs> so yeah i remember it. the first time i saw you was i saw you like perform yeah. before i'd met you mm-hmm. and then all i was thinking is like that girl's got a great voice like it's a really <laughs> cool voice i like it it's it's like sultry and sexy and cool 
I think that's probably how people perceive maybe. it. Maybe. I feel like it doesn't match my aesthetics at all, though. Like, maybe. I'm not, I don't really do sultry. I'm more like, hey, guys, what's up? I'm, I'm flop sweating. I have meat sweats, and I haven't yeah. eaten meat. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, Gross. like all the pictures I see of you on Facebook are you on the toilet. Most. Uh, yeah. That's a huge, huge number. I'm actually... Uh, uh, Madeline is painting me. Is doing on the one toilet? Of the oil painting oh, me. I love um, Madeline's paintings. They're so cool. So cool. So so cool. I really like that she's doing that too. I mean, I didn't know about it until she came up with like the entire that series of like the guys' comic house or whatever, uh-huh. like the Albert Kirshner, Tyler Schnupp, that whole series. And it was like, what? What? And then the <laughs> fact that she made it accessible for everyone. I'm like, man, you're so cool. So I'm excited yeah. to see it. For anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, Madeline Berman, she's an awesome artist. She was actually in my music video, too. She was the the person who played the arm of the robot. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she did awesome. And she's uh, Faye Fontaine on Facebook. Yeah. She probably doesn't even want us talking about it. I don't know. I don't but her know. artwork well, is awesome. She's, she's doing this like, series of Seattle comedians. I check it out. She does the both the Seattle comedians and then just her art in general is really, really cool. Yeah, it's so. really, really cool. She's been doing some mixed media stuff lately that I really like. So I really like mixed media art. So. Like what kind of stuff? Like a lot of like kind of... What's right? I don't want to say collage because it makes it seem like something you do at middle school, but kind of collagey, very uh, whimsical. I'm, I'm picturing like a lot of plastic unicorns for some reason, and I don't <laughs> think I'm wrong, but like in a cool wow. way. So I don't know. I'd check it out. She's doing some neat stuff right now. So Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so is there like anything you want to say about who you are and where you come from and what you do? That you want people to know? I don't think so. Not really. <laughs> you pretty much covered it with the the I do stand up comedy in Seattle. Yeah. Um, from Wisconsin originally, moved out here about f- four years ago? Question mark. Uh, yeah, just been kicking it around here. Excited to talk about uh, one of my favorite short stories. Yeah. Segway. Segway. Uh, <laughs> I've dabbled in science fiction, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I asked you what you might want to do if you came on the podcast and you said that you had this sci-fi short story that you were obsessed with, which immediately got me super excited because <laughs> that means that if it's short enough, we can actually like read it on the podcast, which mm-hmm. we're going to do. So that's what this episode's going to be. We're going to read the short story. <laughs> read and discuss. Read and then discuss. <laughs> it's going to be like a homework assignment. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put in adequate pauses for you to take notes for those of you following along at home. Yeah. Go from there. And we're going to try really hard to read it well oh we forgot to talk about how we're gonna do that because it's kind of difficult because it's a one one uh narrator sort of thing so we kind of jump around paragraph that's what i was thinking we we would just like go back and forth maybe you do a couple paragraphs i do a couple paragraphs so you can read and then you can rest (laughs) you just hear like (laughs) heavy breathing in the back (gasps) inhaler sounds yeah I don't know how that's going to translate onto the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I was really excited about when you mentioned this story is that it's written by Harlan Ellison. It's mm-hmm. called I Have No Mouth, But I Can Speak. No, I Have No Mouth. Yet I Must Scream. Yet I Must Scream. I don't know what it's called. I mean, it's open <laughs> right in front of me, and I could just look at it and read it, but that would be easier. Hold on. Let me find. I have my uh, copy on here somewhere. Dead air. Dead air. Dead air. Ain't dead. No more. Because we're making noise, noise, noise. I'm just going to put a beat behind that and have that be the whole episode. Can that just be your 
this. Okay. I have no mouth and I must scream. I have no mouth and I must scream. Yep. That's the name of the story. It's by Harlan Ellison. Uh, Ellison is someone that I had heard of mostly because of Star Trek, because he wrote one of the most famous episodes ever of uh, the original series of Star Trek. Which one? Uh, I'm looking up the title right now because I'm stupid. I have the worst memory. Um, City on the Edge of Forever, I think it's called. Let's okay. see if that's right. Uh, for you guys at home, let me give you a little bit of background on Harlan Ellison. Uh, he was involved in The Terminator, uh, Dreams with Sharp Teeth, A Boy and His Dog, Phantom 2040, Soldier, and A Pattern of Deceit. His spouse is Susan Toth, and <laughs> I haven't gotten to the good parts of Wikipedia yet, so mostly we're just... He was born 1934. That reminds me, his involvement in The Terminator is... I'm pretty sure that he sued them because he thought that they ripped him off. So so he's not really involved. <laughs> yeah, well, one of his short stories is very similar to something in The Terminator, um, so he sued like James Cameron to get some sort of credit on The Terminator. He seems to have a lot of... Because I can see there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the, derp, 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 derp. <laughs> so a big theme in like the Terminator is Rocco's Basilisk. Do you know what that is? No. Um, cool. We'll discuss that after Ooh, we finish I'm reading. It's very good. It's very, very interesting. Um, that's a big theme in the Terminator. And I feel like that kind of also is very much a theme in I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream. So I can sort of see where he has this like recurring theme in his works of, Rocco's Basilisk, which is basically, we'll get in more into it later, but it's basically like the, it's a paradox, like a thought, a thought game, thought paradox about how, not paradox, I don't remember the word I'm looking for, but about how it's worth investing in AI now because ultimately when AI takes over the entire world, there's a, it could retroactively punish those people that weren't putting money into it in the past. Yeah. It's a really, really confusing, kind of a weird time travel -y sort of thing. But Like once AI becomes self-aware, it will kill the shit out of us, basically. Yes, yeah. which, is <laughs> which is basically the theme of I have no mouth, but I must scream. But also it's, there's that part of it, like the eventual robot uprising. But in this particular case, like what Rocco's Basilisk is, is invest in technology startups and technological uh, advancements now so that when... AI takes over and figures out time travel and comes back to punish those that oh. were against it, you can be like, hey, I was for you guys the whole time. Wow. It's weird. It's very, Which could very happen weird. any day. Any day. Any <laughs> day. Just a, a Terminator could show up and be like, mm, oh, fuck you guys. Yeah. Which is kind of a loose loose uh, definition of what the Terminator's about, but it's I fine. I feel like, what is that sound outside? Someone's like air blowing something. I guess weed whacking. Weed or, whacking. Or, yeah, leaf blower. Assholes. Maybe it's a Terminator killing somebody. Oh, man, yeah. with a really quiet chainsaw. If, if a Terminator approached you on the street, would your initial reaction be, oh, shit, I'm going to die, or, oh, man, that's fucking rad, there's a Terminator and it's real? I think I would be skeptical until death. Like, I would, <laughs> he would come up to me and he'd shoot me in the head, and my last thought would be like, is this a right, cosplayer? What's going on? Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Am I getting punked? <laughs> Is it 2002? <laughs> What's going on? I just, I'm not someone who's very good at, like, uh, reacting to things outside of just sort of a sense of, like, all right, what's going on here? Yeah. Even if it's obviously, like, hey, your life's actively in danger. I'll just be like, okay, what's, what are we doing? What's going on? 
Just taking a read of the situation as I'm bleeding out. As you're bleeding. Like, yeah. As the Terminator is, like, changing his arm into a knife and sticking it through yeah. your belly. Yeah, I'll just be like, hmm, that's, um, really? It's like, your last thought is, wow, I guess that's a T-1000, and then you die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. I tend to be very even keeled. Just like, all right, what would you do? Um, I th- I'd probably do the same exact thing, except that I would probably pee my pants. Uh, but I'd be happy... That I was being killed by a T-1000 instead of a T-100 because that would make me feel like I was a bigger threat. You know? <laughs> like, like, you know, on Survivor, all the big threats get kicked off early? Yeah. That's me in the robotic uprising. Jeez. I honestly, that's a really good way of thinking of it because honestly, my reaction would mostly be like, he'd like stab me and I'd still turn around and be like, you're looking for someone else, man. Like, I am not, <laughs> I am not this, the salvation of uh, the human race. I'm, I'm... Just me. You yeah. made a mistake, man. Wrong Annika Sila. You meant that other <laughs> one and that I, doesn't exist. I'm like so self-absorbed that I'd be like, wow, in the future, my music <laughs> is like the thing that holds humanity together during the robot uprising, you know? <laughs> and they have to come back and kill me. I mean, you are a very talented musician. I appreciate that. So I can totally that. see that. And I do write in the genre. You, you know? very much do. That's true. I don't think any country singer is going to be like, oh, I should have seen this coming. <laughs> I shouldn't I, have written that anti-Terminator propaganda song. <laughs> you know, all that futuristic dystopian folk punk music. It's whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, oh, the man. sound of that weed whacker is driving me crazy. But I'm going to ignore it because no one else is going to care. No. Um, no, no okay, no. so we're going to read this short story. It's written by Harlan Ellison, who wrote... Uh, for the Star Trek fans out there, of which I think a lot of the people who listen to this are Star Trek fans, he wrote The City on the Edge of Forever, which is, in some circles, considered to be the absolute best episode of the original series of Star Trek. I don't have a big, uh, I don't have a big Star Trek background. What kind of tell me about the uh, episode? Uh, well, very short description of it is basically it is Back to the Future. I mean, it's so similar to Back to the Future. Like, uh, Kirk and Spock... Uh, have to go back in time to stop this guy who has also gone back in time from destroying the future. Okay. Uh, and then Kirk has a relationship with this woman back in time who kind of falls in love. It's a really interesting episode. It's really cool. Um, there's many that I prefer. It's a very good episode. I don't think it's the best one because they're on Earth in the past the whole time, and I want to see like stuff in space with Vulcans and Romulans. Yeah, but, I, I understand that. But, you know, it's, still, it's very good. But anyway, so Harlan Ellison uh, wrote that and he has a huge reputation for being, like, very litigious. He sues a lot of people. Um, like, he sued James Cameron for Terminator credit. I guess he had, like, a lot of fights with uh, the writing staff on Star Trek because they wanted to rewrite some stuff. Because okay. when an outside writer comes into a TV show and writes something, it's not necessarily in the tone of the show. Yeah. So they'll take those ideas and they'll rewrite them a little bit and kind of make it work a little better. Because there was some stuff that was edited out of the episode and I think he was mad about that. He's gone on record saying he's mad about everything and likes to sue everyone. Okay. That sort of makes sense, I guess, based yeah. on based on what I've heard about him like outside of this. I've heard he was kind of an asshole. And now I know yeah. why. That specifies why he's an asshole. So. Yeah. We are definitely going to get sued for doing this podcast. Oh, God. I hope so. Any publicity <laughs> is good publicity. Yeah, totally. I'll take it. But, I mean, the whole reason we're doing this is out of appreciation for his awesome short story. Yeah, so right? I'm, all we things like aside, you, Harlan. Are you still alive? Writer. I actually don't know if you're still alive. Is he still alive? I don't know. Well, he was born. He's 81. Nice. As of May 27th. Happy, very belated birthday, Harlan J. Ellison. Yeah. We love you. Don't sue us. Here is your short story. So we're going to read this first, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, would you like to do the honors, Miss Sela? I and sure start will. Start us off. You want to do... Basically, we... it's kind of... Yeah, let's look through. It's kind of broken up into 
really long chunks with all the, interestingly enough, uh, you can't see this at home, but it's broken up in these chunks of like dotted writing or whatever. And that actually spells things out yeah. in like an old school, I don't remember what it's called, but it's like a computer. I read that also. Yeah, it's like yeah. the original like binary, but in like punch card form. That's exactly what it is, I think. Is I that think what that's it is? Exactly okay. what it is. So, yeah, and we can we can look it up after we're done on Wikipedia and say what it um, what it means. Okay. Um, Definitely. So why, why don't we do like three paragraphs each and then switch back, or like we'll just do a chunk and then give the other yeah. person an eye. Yeah, like that's a, fine. Hey, yeah, it's and any any <laughs> weird overlaps you can just edit out. Yeah, so. totally. There's a screen in my vision. All right, how's that? There we go. I have no mouth and I must scream by Harlan Ellison. Limp, the body of Gorister hung from the pink pallet, unsupported, hanging high above us in the computer chamber, and it did not shiver in the chill, oily breeze that blew eternally through the main cavern. The body hung head down, attached to the underside of the pallet by the sole of its right foot. It had been drained of blood through a precise incision made from ear to ear under the lantern jaw. There was no blood on the reflective surface of the metal floor. When Gorister joined our group and looked up at himself, it was already too late for us to realize that, once again, AM had duped us, had had its fun. It had been a diversion on the part of the machine. Three of us had vomited, turning away from one another in a reflex as ancient as the nausea that it had produced it. Gorister went white. It was almost as though he had seen a voodoo icon and was afraid of the future. Oh, God, he mumbled and walked away. The three of us followed him after a time and found him sitting with his back to one of the smaller, chittering banks, his head in his hands. Ellen knelt down beside him and stroked his hair. He didn't move, but his voice came out of his covered face quite clearly. Why doesn't it just do a sit and get it over with? Christ, I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. It was our 109th year in the computer. He was speaking for all of us. Nimdok which was the name the machine had forced him to use because A.M. amused itself with strange sounds, was hallucinating that there were canned goods in the ice caverns. Gorister and I were very dubious. It's another shuck, I told him. Like the goddamn frozen elephant A.M. sold us. Benny almost went out of his mind over that one. We'll hike all the way and it'll be putrefied or some damn thing. I say forget it. Stay here. It'll have to come up with something pretty soon or we'll die. Benny shrugged. Three days it had been since we'd last eaten. Worms. Thick. Ropey. Nimdok was no more certain. He knew there was the chance, but he was getting thin. It couldn't be worse there than here. Colder, but that didn't matter much. Hot, cold, hail, lava, boils or locusts. It had never mattered. The machine masturbated, and we had to take it or die. Ellen decided us. I've got to have something, Ted. Maybe there'll be something, Bartlett pears or peaches. Please, Ted, let's try it. I gave in easily. What the hell? Mattered not at all. Ellen was grateful, though. She took me twice out of turn. Even that had ceased to matter. And she never came, so why bother? But the machine giggled every time we did it. Loud, up there, back there, all around us, he snickered. It snickered. Most of the time, I thought of A.M. as it, without a soul, but the rest of the time, I thought of it as him, in the masculine, the paternal, the patriarchal, for he is a jealous people. Him, it, God as Daddy the Deranged. We left on a Thursday. The machine always kept us up to date on the date. The passage of time was important. Not to us, sure as hell, but to him, it, 
a.m. Thursday. Thanks. Nimdok and Gorister carried Ellen for a while, their hands locked to their own and each other's wrists, a seat. Benny and I walked before and after, just to make sure that, if anything happened, it would catch one of us and at least Ellen would be safe. Fat chance, safe, didn't matter. It was only a hundred miles or so to the ice caverns, and on the second day, when we were lying out under the blistering sun thing he had materialized, he sent down some manna. Tasted like boiled boar urine. We ate it. On the third day, we passed through a valley of obsolescence, filled with, rush- filled with rustling carcasses of ancient computer banks. AM had been ruthless with its own life as with ours. It was a mark of his personality. It strove for perfection. Whether it was a matter of killing off unproductive elements in his own world, filling bulk, or perfect methods for torturing us, A.M. was as thorough as those who had invented him, now long since gone to dust, could have ever hoped. There was a light filtering down from above, and we realized we must be very near the surface. But we didn't try to crawl up to see. There was virtually nothing out there. Had been nothing that could be considered anything for over a hundred years. Only the blasted skin of what had once been the home of billions. Now there are only five of us, down here inside, alone with A.M., I heard Ellen saying frantically, No, Benny, don't. Come on, Benny, don't, please. And then I realized I had been hearing Benny murmuring under his breath for several minutes. He was saying, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out, over and over. His monkey-like face was crumbled up in an expression of beautific delight and sadness, all at the same time. The radiation scars A.M. had given him during the festival were drawn down into a mass of pink-white puckerings, and his features seemed to work independently of one another. Perhaps Benny was the luckiest of the five of us. He had gone stark, staring mad many years before. But even though we could call A.M. any damn thing we liked, could think the foulest thoughts of fused memory banks and corroded base plates, of burnt-out circuits and shattered control bubbles, the machine would not tolerate our trying to escape. Benny leapt away from me as I grabbed for him. He scrambled up the face of a smaller memory cube, tilted on its side and filled with rotten components. He squatted there for a moment, looking like the chimpanzee A.M. had intended him to resemble. Then he leapt high, caught a trailing beam of pitted and corroded metal, and went up it, hand over hand like an animal, till he was on a girdered ledge twenty feet above us. Oh, Ted, Nimdok, please help him. Get him down before... She cut off. Tears began to stand in her eyes. She moved her hands aimlessly. It was too late. None of us wanted to hear him when whatever was going to happen happened. And besides, we all saw through her concern. When A.M. had altered Benny during the machine's utterly irrational, hysterical phase, it was not merely Benny's face the computer had made like a giant ape's. He was big in the privates. She loved that. She serviced us, as a matter of course, but she loved it from him. Oh, Ellen. Pedestal Ellen. Pristine, pure Ellen. Oh, Ellen the clean. Scum filth. Gorister slapped her. She slumped down, staring up at poor loony Benny, and she cried. It was her big defense, crying. We had gotten used to it 75 years earlier. Gorister kicked her in the side. Then the sound began. It was light, that sound. Half sound and half light, something that began to glow from Benny's eyes and pulse with growing loudness. Dim sonorities that grew more gigantic and brighter as the light and sound increased in tempo. 
It must have been painful, and the pain must have been increasing with the boldness of the light, the rising volume of the sound, for Benny began to mule like a wounded animal. At first softly, when the light was dim and the sound was muted, then louder as his shoulders hunched together. His back humped as though he was trying to get away from it. His hands folded across his chest like a chipmunk's. His head tilted to the side. The sad little monkey face pinched in anguish. Then he began to howl as the sound coming from his eyes grew louder. Louder and louder. I slapped the sides of my head with my hands, but I couldn't shut it out. It cut through easily. The pain shivered through my flesh like tinfoil on a tooth. And Benny was suddenly pulled erect. On the girder, he stood up, jerked to his feet like a puppet. The light was now pulsing out of his eyes in two great round beams. The sound crawled up and up some incomprehensible scale, and then he fell forward, straight down, and hit the plate steel floor with a crash. He lay there jerking spastically as the light flowed around him and around him, and the sound spiraled up out of normal range. Then the light beat its way back inside his head. The sound spiraled down, and he was left lying there, crying piteously. His eyes were two soft, moist pools of pus-like jelly. A.M. had blinded him. Gorister and Nimdok and myself, we turned away. But not before we caught the look of relief on Ellen's warm, concerned face. Sea-green light suffused the cavern where we made camp. A.M. provided punk and we burned it, sitting huddled around the wan and pathetic fire, telling stories to keep Benny from crying in his permanent night. What does A.M. mean? Gorister answered him. We had done this sequence a thousand times before, but it was Benny's favorite story. At first it meant allied master computer, and then it meant adaptive manipulator, and later on it developed sentience and linked itself up, and they called it an aggressive menace. But by then it was too late, and finally it called itself A.M., emerging intelligence, and what it meant was I am, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Benny drooled a little and snickered. There was the Chinese AM, and the Russian AM, and the Yankee AM, and... He stopped. Benny was beating on the floor plates with his large, hard fist. He was not happy. Gorister had not started at the beginning. Gorister began again. The Cold War started and became World War III, and just kept going. It became a big war, a very complex war, so they needed the computers to handle it. They sank the first shafts and began building AM. There was the Chinese AM, and the Russian AM, and the Yankee AM, and everything was fine until they had honeycombed the entire planet, adding on this element and that element. But one day, AM woke up and knew who he was, and he linked himself, and he began feeding all the killing data until everyone was dead, except for the five of us. And AM brought us down here. Benny was smiling sadly. He was also drooling again. Ellen wiped the spittle from the corner of his mouth with the hem of her skirt. Gorister always tried to tell it a little more succinctly each time, but beyond the bare facts, there was nothing to say. None of us knew why A.M. had saved five people, or why our specific five, or why he spent all his time tormenting us, or, why, or even why he had made us virtually immortal. In the darkness, one of the computer banks began humming. The tone was picked up half a mile away down the cavern by another bank. Then one by one, each of the elements began to tune itself, and there was a faint chittering as thought raced through the machine. The sound grew, and the lights ran across the faces of the consoles like heat lightning. 
The sound spiraled up till it sounded like a million metallic insects. Angry, menacing. What is it? Ellen cried. There was terror in her voice. She hadn't become accustomed to it, even now. It's going to be bad this time, Nimdok said. He's going to speak, Gorister said. I know it. Let's get the hell out of here, I said suddenly, getting to my feet. No, Ted, sit down. What if he's got pits out there or something else we can't see? It's too dark, Gorister said with resignation. Then we heard, I don't know, something moving towards us in the darkness. Huge, shambling, hairy, moist, it came towards us. We couldn't even see it, but there was a ponderous impression of bulk heaving itself towards us. Great weight was coming at us, out of the darkness, and it was more a sense of pressure, of air forcing itself into a limited space, expanding the invisible walls of a sphere. Benny began to whimper. Nimdok's lower lip trembled and he bit it hard, trying to stop it. Ellen slid across the metal floor to Gorister and huddled into him. There was the smell of matted, wet fur in the cavern. There was the smell of charred wood. There was the smell of dusty velvet. There was a smell of rotting orchids. There was a smell of sour milk. There was a smell of sulfur, of rancid butter, of oil slick, of grease, of chalk dust, of human scalps. Am was keying us. He was tickling us. There was a smell of... I heard myself shriek and the hinges of my jaws ached. I scuttled across the floor, across the cold metal with its endless lines of rivets, on my hands and knees, the smell gagging me, filling my head with a thunderous pain that sent me away in horror. I fled like a cockroach, across the floor and out into the darkness. That something moved inexorably after me. The others were still back there, gathered around the firelight, laughing. The hysterical choir of insane giggles rising up into the darkness like thick, many-colored wood smoke. I went away quickly and hid. How many hours it may have been, how many days or even years, they never told me. Ellen chided me for sulking, and Nimdok tried to persuade me it had only been a nervous reflex on their part, the laughing. But I knew it wasn't the relief a soldier feels when the bullet hits the man next to him. I knew it wasn't a reflex. They hated me. They were surely against me, and A.M. could even sense this hatred, and made it worse for me because of the depth of their hatred. We had been kept alive, rejuvenated, made to remain constantly at the age we had been when A.M. had brought us below, and they hated me because I was the youngest, and the one A.M. had affected least of all. I knew, God how I knew, the bastards and that dirty bitch Ellen. Benny had been a brilliant theorist, a college professor, now he was little more than a semi-human, semi-simian. He had been handsome, the machine had ruined that. He had been lucid. The machine had driven him mad. He had been gay, and the machine had given him an organ fit for a horse. A.M. had done a job on Benny. Gorister had been a worrier. He was a Connie, a conscientious objector. He was a peace marcher. He was a planner, a doer, a looker ahead. A.M. had turned him into a shoulder shrugger, had made him a little dead in his concern. A.M. had robbed him. Nimdok went off in the darkness by himself for long times, I don't know what it was he did out there. A.M. never let us know. But whatever it was, Nimdok always came back white, drained of blood, shaken, shaking. A.M. had hit him hard in a special way, even if we didn't know quite how. And Ellen, that douchebag, A.M. had left her alone, 
had made her more of a slut than she had ever been. All her talk of sweetness and light, all her memories of true love, all the lies she wanted us to believe. That she had been a virgin only twice removed before A.M. grabbed her and brought her down here with us. No, A.M. had given her pleasure, even if she said it wasn't nice to do. I was the only one still sane and whole. Really? A.M. had not tampered with my mind. Not at all. I only had to suffer what he visited down on us. All the delusions, all the nightmares, the torments. But those scum, all four of them, they were lined in a raid against me. If I hadn't had to stand them off all the time, be on my guard against them all the time, I might have found it easier to combat A.M. At which point it passed and I began crying. Oh, Jesus, sweet Jesus, if there ever was a Jesus and if there is a God, please, please, please let us out of here or kill us. Because at that moment, I think I realized completely so that I was able to verbalize it. A.M. was intent on keeping us in his belly forever, twisting and torturing us forever. The machine hated us as no sentient creature had ever hated before. And we were helpless. It also became hideously clear. If there was a sweet Jesus, and if there was a God, the God was A.M. The hurricane hit us with the force of a glacier thundering into the sea. It was a palpable presence. Winds that tore at us, flinging us back the way we had come, down the twisting, computer-lined corridors of the dark way. Ellen screamed as she was lifted and hurled face forward into a screaming shoal of machines, their individual voices strident as bats in flight. She could not even fall. The howling winds kept her aloft, buffeted her, bounced her, tossed her back and back and down and away from us, out of sight suddenly, as she was swirled around a bend in the dark way. Her face had been bloody, her eyes closed. None of us could get to her. We clung tenaciously to whatever outcropping we had reached. Benny wedged in between two great crackle-finished cabinets, Nimdok with fingers claw-formed over a railing circling a catwalk forty feet above us. Gorister plastered upside down against a wall niche formed by two great machines with glassed face dials that swung back and forth between red and yellow lines whose meanings we could not even fathom. Sliding across the deck plates, the tips of my fingers had been ripped away. I was trembling, shuddering, rocking as the wind beat at me, whipped at me, screamed down out of nowhere at me, and pulled me free from one sliver-thin opening in the plates to the next. My mind was a roiling, tinkling, chittering softness of brain parts that expanded and contracted in quivering frenzy. The wind was the scream of a great mad bird as it flapped its immense wings. And then we were all lifted and hurled away from there, down back the way we had come, around a bend, into a dark way we had never explored, over terrain that was ruined and filled with broken glass and rotting cables and rusted metal, and far away, farther than any of us had ever been. Trailing along miles behind Ellen, I could see her every now and then, crashing into metal walls and surging on, with all of us screaming in the freezing, thunderous hurricane wind that would never end, and then suddenly it stopped and we fell. We had been in flight for an endless time. I thought it might have been weeks. We fell and hit, and I went through red and gray and black and heard myself moaning. Not dead. A.M. went into my mind. He walked smoothly here and there and looked with interest at all the pockmarks he had created in 109 years. He looked at the cross-routed and reconnected synapses and all the tissue damages his gift of immortality had included. 
He smiled softly at the pit that dropped into the center of my brain and the faint, moth-soft murmurings of the things far down there that gibbered without meaning, without pause. A.M. said, very politely, in a pillar of stainless steel bearing bright neon letters, Hate. Let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. There are 387.44 million miles of printed circuits in the wafer-thin layers that fill my complex. If the word hate was engraved on each nano-angstrom of those hundreds of millions of miles, it would not equal the one one-billionth of the hate I feel for humans at this micro-instant for you. Hate. Hate. A.M. said it with the sliding cold horror of a razor blade slicing my eyeball. A.M. said it with the bubbling thickness of my lungs filling with phlegm, drowning me from within. A.M. said it with the shriek of babies being ground beneath blue-hot rollers. A.M. said it with the taste of maggoty pork. A.M. touched me in every way I have ever been touched, and devised new ways at his leisure there inside my mind. All to bring me to full realization of why it had done this to the five of us, why it had saved us for himself. We had given A.M. sentience, inadvertently, of course, but sentience nonetheless. But it had been trapped. A.M. wasn't God. He was a machine. We had created him to think, but there was nothing it could do with that creativity. In rage, in frenzy, the machine had killed the human race, almost all of us, and still it was trapped. A.M. could not wander. A.M. could not wonder. A.M. could not belong. He could merely be. And so... With the innate loathing that all machines had always held for the weak, soft creatures who had built them, he had sought revenge. And in his paranoia, he had decided to reprieve five of us for a personal, everlasting punishment that would never serve to diminish his hatred, that would merely keep him reminded, amused, proficient at hating man, immortal, trapped subject to any torment he could devise for us from the limitless miracles at his command. He would never let us go. We were his belly slaves. We were all he had to do with his forever time. We would be forever with him, with the cavern-filling bulk of the creature machine, with the all-mind soulless world he had become. He was earth, and we were the fruit of that earth. And though he had eaten us, he would never digest us. We could not die. We had tried it. We had attempted suicide. One or two of us had but A.M. had stopped us. I suppose we had wanted to be stopped. Don't ask why. I never did. More than a million times a day. Perhaps once we might be able to sneak a death past him. Immortal, yes, but not indestructible. I saw that when A.M. withdrew from my mind and allowed me the exquisite ugliness of returning to consciousness with the feeling of that burning neon pillar still rammed deep into the soft gray brain matter. He withdrew, murmuring, to hell with you. And added brightly, but then you're there, aren't you? The hurricane had, indeed, precisely been caused by a great mad bird as it flapped its immense wings. We had been traveling for close to a month, and A.M. had allowed passages to open to us only sufficient to lead us up there, directly under the North Pole, where it had nightmared the creature for our torment. What whole cloth had he employed to create such a beast? Where had he gotten the concept? From our minds? 
From his knowledge of everything that had ever been on this planet, he now infested and ruled. From Norse mythology, it had sprung this eagle, this carrion bird, this rock, this hergelmere, the wind creature, hurricane incarnate, gigantic, the world's immense, monstrous, grotesque, massive, swollen, overpowering, beyond description. There was a mound rising above us, the bird of winds heaved with its own irregular breathing, its snake neck arching up into the gloom beneath the North Pole, supporting a head as large as a Tudor mansion, a beak that opened slowly as the jaws of the most monstrous crocodile ever conceived, sensuously. Ridges of tufted flesh puckering about two evil eyes, as cold as the view down into a glacial crevice, ice blue and somehow moving liquidly. It heaved once more and lifted its great sweat-colored wings in a movement that was certainly a shrug. Then it settled and slept. Talons, fangs, nails, blades. It slept. A.M. appeared to us as a burning bush and said we could kill the hurricane bird if we wanted to eat. We had not eaten in a very long time, but even so, Gorister merely shrugged. Benny began to shiver and he drooled. Ellen held him. Ted, I'm hungry, she said. I smiled at her. I was trying to be reassuring, but it was as phony as Nimdok's bravado. Give us weapons, he demanded. The burning bush vanished, and there were two crude sets of bows and arrows, and a water pistol lying on the cold deck plates. I picked up a set. Useless. Nimdok swallowed heavily. We turned and started the long way back. The hurricane bird had blown us about for a length of time we could not conceive. Most of that time we had been unconscious but we had not eaten. A month on the march to the bird itself, without food. Now how much longer to find our way to the ice caverns and the promised canned goods? None of us cared to think about it. We would not die. We would be given filth and scum to eat, of one kind or another, or nothing at all. A.M. would keep our bodies alive somehow, in pain, in agony. The bird slept back there. For how long, it didn't matter, when A.M. was tired of its being there, it would vanish. But all that meat, all that tender meat. As we walked, the lunatic laugh of a fat woman rang high and around us in the computer chambers that led endlessly nowhere. It was not Ellen's laugh. She was not fat, and I had not heard her laugh for 109 years. In fact, I had not heard. We walked. I was hungry. We moved slowly. There was often fainting, and we would have to wait. One day he decided to cause us an earthquake, at the same time rooting us to the spot with nails through the soles of our shoes. Ellen and Nimdok were both caught when a fissure shot its lightning bolt opening across the floor plates. They disappeared and were gone. When the earthquake was over, we continued, on our way, Benny, Gorister, and myself. Ellen and Nimdok were returned to us later that night, which abruptly became a day as the heavenly legion bore them to us with celestial chorus singing, Go Down, Moses. The archangels circled several times and then dropped the hideously mangled bodies. We kept walking, and a while later, Ellen and Nimdok fell in behind us. They were no worse for wear. But now Ellen walked with a limp. A.M. had left her that. It was a long trip to the ice caverns to find the canned food. Ellen kept talking about the Bing cherries and Hawaiian fruit cocktail. I tried not to think about it. The hunger was something that had come to life, even as A.M. had come to life. 
It was alive in my belly, even as we were in the belly of the earth, and A.M. wanted the similarity known to us. So he heightened the hunger. There's no way to describe the pains that not having eaten for months brought us, and yet we were kept alive. Stomachs that were merely cauldrons of acid, bubbling, foaming, always shooting spears of sliver-thin pain into our chests. It was the pain of this terminal ulcer, terminal cancer, terminal paresis. It was unending pain. And we passed through the cavern of rats, and we passed through the path of boiling steam, and we passed through the country of the blind, and we passed through the slough of despond, and we passed through the veil of tears. And we came finally to the ice caverns, horizonless thousands of miles in which the ice had formed in blue and silver flashes, where novas lived in the glass. The down-dropping stalactites as thick and glorious as diamonds that had been made to run like jelly and then solidified in graceful eternities of smooth, sharp perfection. We saw the stack of canned goods, and we tried to run to them. We fell in the snow, and we got up and went on. And Benny shoved us away and went at them and pawed them and gummed them and nodded them, and he could not open them. A.M. had not given us a tool to open the cans. Benny grabbed a three-quart can of guava shells and began to batter it against the ice bank. The ice flew and shattered, but the can was merely dented. While we heard the laughter of a fat lady high overhead and echoing down and down and down the tundra, Benny went completely mad with rage. He began throwing cans as we all scrabbled about in the snow and ice, trying to find a way to end the helpless agony of frustration, but there was no way. Then Benny's mouth began to drool, and he flung himself on Gorister. In that instant, I felt terribly calm. Surrounded by madness, surrounded by hunger, surrounded by everything but death, I knew death was our only way out. A.M. had kept us alive, but there was a way to defeat him. Not total defeat, but at least peace. I would settle for that. I had to do it quickly. Benny was eating Gorister's face. Gorister on his side, thrashing snow, Benny wrapped around him with powerful monkey legs, crushing Gorister's waist. His hands locked around Gorister's head like a nutcracker, and his mouth ripping at the tender skin of Gorister's cheek. Gorister screamed with such a jagged edge violence that stalactites fell. They plunged down softly, erect in the receiving snowdrifts. Spears, hundreds of them, everywhere, protruding from the snow. Benny's head pulled back sharply as something gave all at once, and a bleeding, raw white dripping of flesh hung from his teeth. Ellen's face, black against the white snow, dominoes and chalk dust. Nimdok with no expression but eyes, all eyes. Gorister, half-conscious. Benny, now an animal. I knew A.M. would let him play. Gorister would not die, but Benny would fill his stomach. I turned half to my right and drew a huge ice spear from the snow all in an instant. I drove the great ice point ahead of me like a battering ram, braced against my right thigh. It struck Benny on the right side, just under the ribcage, and drove upward through his stomach and broke inside him. He pitched forward and lay still. Gorister lay on his back. I pulled another spear free and straddled him, still moving, driving the spear straight down through his throat. His eyes closed as the cold penetrated. Ellen must have realized what I had decided, even as fear gripped her. 
She ran at Nimdok with a short icicle as he screamed and into his mouth, and the force of her rush did the job. His head jerked sharply as if it had been nailed to the snow crust behind him. All in an instant. There was an eternity beat of soundless anticipation. I could hear A.M. draw in his breath. His toys had been taken from him. Three of them were dead, could not be revived. He could keep us alive by his strength and talent, but he was not God. He could not bring them back. Ellen looked at me, her ebony features stark against the snow that surrounded us. There was fear and pleading in her manner, the way she held herself ready. I knew we only had a heartbeat before Am would stop us. It struck her and she folded towards me, bleeding from the mouth. I could not read meaning into her expression. The pain had been too great, had contorted her face. But it might have been a thank you. It's possible. Please. Some hundreds of years may have passed. I don't know. A.M. has been having fun for some time, accelerating and retarding my time sense. I will say the word now. Now. It took me ten months to say now. I don't know. I think it has been some hundreds of years. He was furious. He wouldn't let me bury them. It didn't matter. There was no way to dig up the deck plates. He dried up the snow. He brought the night. He roared and sent locusts. It didn't do a thing. They stayed dead. I'd had him. He was furious. I had thought A.M. hated me before. I was wrong. It was not even a shadow of the hate he now slavered from every printed surrogate. He made certain I would suffer eternally and could not do myself in. He left my mind intact. I can dream. I can wonder. I can lament. I remember all four of them. I wish... Well, it doesn't make any sense. I know I saved them. I know I saved them from what has happened to me, but still, I cannot forget killing them. Ellen's face. It isn't easy. Sometimes I want to. It doesn't matter. A.M. has altered me for his own peace of mind, I suppose. He doesn't want me to run at full speed into a computer bank and smash my skull, or hold my breath till I faint, or cut my throat on a rusted sheet of metal. There are reflective surfaces down here. I will describe myself as I see myself. I am a great soft jelly thing, smoothly rounded, with no mouth, with pulsing white holes filled by fog where my eyes used to be, rubbery appendages that were once my arms, bulks rounding down into legless humps of soft, slippery matter. I leave a moist trail when I move, blotches of diseased, evil gray, come and go on my surface, as though light is being beamed from within. Outwardly, dumbly I shamble about, a thing that could never have been known as human, a thing whose shape is so alien, a travesty that humanity becomes more obscene for the vague resemblance. Inwardly, alone, here, living under the land, under the sea, in the belly of A.M., whom we created because our time was badly spent and we must have known unconsciously that he could do it better. At least the four of them are safe at last. A.M. will be all the matter for that. It makes me a little happier. And yet, A.M. has won, simply. He has taken his revenge. I have no mouth, and I must scream.
Ugh. Woof. Yeah. I really love how, like, visceral that story is. It's so... He just describes things, like, things so unapologetically, and he really, like, focuses on, like, the human body and fucking and gross, <laughs> just nastiness. Um, and I feel like that's sort of... I like that because I feel like uh, AM, like... If there was this whole idea of like uh, sentient and vengeful artificial intelligence, I imagine it would kind of have a lot of fun fucking around with like the fact that we're organic and we're gross and we have fluids and guts in us (laughs) and we have to reproduce via sex. And like I could just see like AI being fascinated with like, this is so gross. Let's let's make this one love Having sex, let's make Ellen a huge slut. Let's give Benny a huge dick because I could see AI being kind of like that, just being like, this is disgusting. Yeah. I'm going to play around with it. And maybe like even a little bit jealous because the AI can never experience that. And it sees these things that gives humans joy and it has no joy. Yeah. Um, And it can't be a part of that. And it just wants to kind of mock us for it. Um, Yeah, the first time I read that, I was just like, really depressed after it's really upsetting it's so and and the way he describes himself at the end like it's such a i think that's why i think had everyone died i would have been like well that's saccharine like oh good they're all safe the fact that he like sacrificed himself especially because he talks about earlier on how he and they they kind of talk about this in the wikipedia page like you're talking about he talks about how he resents all of them Mm -hmm. and how he thinks they hate him because AM didn't fuck didn't with him at all. Him as yeah. Much. yeah, but it did change him. It made him super paranoid. Right. It it messed with him by being like, "Look, at I'm not messing with you." But they really hate that. So yeah. the fact that he still sacrificed himself, basically knowing that he would be the one left alive, I I like that. It kind of gives me faith in humans because this this whole story doesn't really. The way a lot of these these people are described and how he describes people, I'm like, yeah, well, maybe humans sort of suck. <laughs> so I kind of like that. It's like weirdly uplifting at wow. the end. What a great way to look at it. And that's totally true because they are in hell. What's really interesting is that it's not the biblical hell. It's like this post-apocalyptic hell. Yeah. Uh, but it is like the most hellish place you could possibly imagine. Well, what I really like is that it's it's a hell of our own making too. Like we totally. created that. <laughs> We thought we were doing something good because what is uh, they talk about what AM stands for? Oh, here yeah. we go. Allied Master Computer. Yeah. So I like to imagine. I think kind of what was going on with uh, AM, like they talked about, uh, they needed big complex computers to handle a big complex war. Hmm. And I always love the idea. I think I really love the idea of something we created to protect us destroys us like I I I don't remember I I feel like this is probably like a sci-fi trope is just the idea of like the idea of an uh protective AI realizing the best way to protect the species is to destroy it because it's just going to destroy itself which granted isn't what happens here but I like the idea of I'm a huge fan of like not so much devil's ad not that's not a deal with the devil sort of thing where you think you're getting something great and it just destroys you in the most like ironic way possible yeah and you think you're getting something great because and you're doing it for the wrong reasons like they're creating this computer to kill everyone else and then it kills everyone else it does exactly what it's designed to do yeah Yeah. 
Uh, a side note, they actually made this into a video game. What? Yeah, uh, in like the 80s, so not a great one. But could you imagine if they, I mean, you look at a game like Dead Space now, which is absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. If you actually made this into a a modern game, that'd be horrifying. That would be horrifying. Oh, my God. Well, it's a great, I mean, it's a great premise for a game where you're inside of this demonic computer who can make anything appear or disappear at will. Right. And you're like, you're just on a quest for canned goods. <laughs> that would be a fun, there was this game for GameCube. Um, no judgment. Didn't own it, holding it for a friend. But there was a game <laughs> for GameCube. And I don't remember what it was called, but it would, you, you were like a girl looking for her grandfather or whatever. And you were slowly going insane. Whoa. But it would affect, it would fuck with the actual player. So it would like, turn the volume down on your TV and, like, fuck with the color of the TV such that it made you feel like you were going insane, not just, like, you as the player. Wow. It messed with your TV sort of what stuff. What a cool idea. Yeah, and, like, at the time it was, you know, it was pretty cool, but it was also old enough that it wasn't quite as convincing as, as you did that now. And if you took that and put it into this game, that would be so cool because it'd create this actual fear of, like, oh, my God, my TV's fucking around right now. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, that would be that would be a really fun thing to add to if they re- rebooted that video game for now. Totally. Oh, because that'd be so that'd be so terrifying. Because, like, <laughs> we use technology so much. And I'm not, like, a huge Luddite or anything, and I'm not exactly, like, afraid of the eventual robot uprising. And I say that uh, trepidatiously because there's a lot of electronics around us right now. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are cool. Y'all, this is the reason I can't be mean to my Roomba, no matter how stupid yeah. it is. But like, That MIDI controller is going to... Gonna get you. <laughs> it looks like teeth. I could see it just coming yeah. at me. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't remember where I was going with that either. But it's so warm in my apartment. I'm having a hard time like keeping. It's a, so a hot, straight... and we're sitting on a leather couch, uh, and I am just slipping and a sliding. It's yeah, real rough. It's, it's gross. It's bad. Um, but anyway. you know, you reminded me of something that I wanted to say when you were talking about like the the video game making you feel like you were in this weird environment. Mm-hmm. When we were reading that story, and that. Um, whatever it was that was making noise outside kept like coming and going. <laughs> yeah. I kept thinking, is AM coming to kill us right now? <laughs> it's like, uh, you guys, you're fucking around <laughs> with this, man. Yeah. Harlan Ellison sends AM. He's like, <laughs> I'm done with the lawsuits. It's time to kick it up a notch. Right. AM, kill everyone. It is now time to start killing people who enjoy my work. <laughs> um, Stop. <laughs> yeah. I would, for, at first, I was like, wow, this is going to ruin this podcast. I'm like, wow, this is going to make this podcast Definitely great. help, <laughs> yeah. Help. Um, but I love what you were saying about how maybe the end is uplifting. Cause I didn't read it that way. Uh, I'm always like when things are horrible in a story, I'm always kind of holding myself ready for it to get better. You know, like when, when a character makes a big sacrifice, I'm always expecting them to learn something from it and move on in a better way. And this story was so bleak where the only way out is, is killing all your friend, friends, quote unquote, who they're not friends, you know, yeah. killing all the other people that exist. Killing They're, your only entertainment is a right. huge part of it, too. That's all he had, and he right. did it for them, which is... Right. But then... So in that moment, like, wow, this is going to end okay where everyone dies. But then, because he's turned into this, like, gelatinous blob monster, which is horrifying. I mean, I'm someone with, uh, you know... Everybody has, like, their own things with their own body, where you yeah. want your body to be a certain way. Um, the idea of being turned into a gelatinous blob monster is 
horrifying basically to me. we watched the movie tusk it's basically what i'm imagining yeah the movie oh tusk. my god you're right just this horrible skin suit of a human being wow so bad that's that's kind of yeah. what i imagined i was like uh like a human jelly bean <laughs> like uh it's, yeah, it's disgusting totally. but so i i read it as being just like a horrible ending but then i'd kind of forgotten about the fact that he was willing because he knew that he wasn't gonna have time to kill himself I think he felt like if he was able to kill one or two of these other people before AM stopped him, that he would have gotten away with something. Yeah. But the fact that he got all of them except for himself, um, it's interesting to to think of what that says about humanity, that even in hell, uh, he's able to you know, recognize that the one good thing he can do is to give them a way out. Because he could have just killed himself first, right? You know, But he decided to kill these other people. Although... The one thing that, that's a little confusing is when he talks about how they tried to kill themselves before but can't because AM always stops them. And then all of a sudden he's able to get away with a quadruple homicide. But yeah. what I was thinking this time through is that maybe in the past they'd always tried to kill themselves by themselves. So AM is watching them. They're like walking up a cliff or something and they try to jump off and he's able to stop them. Maybe they'd never tried to kill each other and that yeah. was the difference and that he didn't see it coming and that's why – um, I think Ted is his name, was able to get away with it. Yeah, and I think part of it is, you know, like Benny was chewing on Gorister's face and right. AM was kind of like, yay, violence, and then it happened so quickly because he kind of, he really reiterates a point of how quickly he has to do it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why he got away with it. Might also be a plot hole, I don't know, but... It doesn't feel like a plot hole. It feels very deliberate. Yes. Yeah. It, it, this is a very watertight story, so that's yeah. why I didn't think... But. I like because the reason why I like the ending because it's not an nowhere in the ending is he really like does he say like I'm a hero for saving them like that's why I like I like my reading of it that it's uplifting because it's yeah. not him going I sacrifice it's not heavy handed in right. look at look at maybe humans aren't so bad after all because the last line is I have no mouth and I must scream he's yeah. not sitting there being like least I have my imagination. I can remember happiness and remember how I was a great person that saved them. He's still suffering, but it's just very subtle where it's like he doesn't regret killing them. I mean, he talks about how he can't forget killing them. Right. But he doesn't regret doing it. He made the right choice, but it's very subtle in that yeah. he feels that way. It's never too heavy-handed, never too like, look it, I'm the martyr, <laughs> which I really like. I like how because how, I think that's a really too many – too many stories, you have people martyr themselves, and then that becomes a huge... It's kind of like what you said, like they learn something from it, and it becomes a huge thing. And in this one, he just... He did it, and that was it. I also like that because what I love about science fiction in general is the idea that it teaches us something about humanity by looking at these bizarre situations. And that... And what you said earlier about how um, it gives you like hope for humanity, I just think that's a really cool thing to take from the story, and I, I will now do that also because it makes me feel better about the horrible thing I just read. Uh, I mean, he talks about, I like, I like this one paragraph. Um, this is after he gets uh, jelly beaned. He's like, I left my, he left my mind intact. I can dream. I can wonder. I can lament. I remember all four of them. I wish, well, it doesn't make any sense. I know I saved them. I know I saved them from what has happened to me, but still I cannot forget killing them. Ellen's face. It isn't easy. Sometimes I want to. It doesn't matter. I like that because that's, that's, if anywhere, if uh, Ellison was going to put in anywhere this idea of like, oh, you did something really great or whatever, like, oh, maybe humanity's not so bad. He could have put it in there and he doesn't. Yeah. He's just sort of like, he's still, 
you still have Ted being super bleak. So it's not too, everything turns out all right in the end. Yeah, which I really appreciate because I'm so sick of that. Like sometimes it's okay to have everything turn out all right in the end, but um, but it happens every time, you know. Right. There's this horrible problem in Hollywood where if everything goes wrong, like it just tests bad with audiences and then it doesn't get released. But the reason it tests bad with audiences is because it was effective, you know? Like it exactly. did what it was supposed They're to sad. do. Have you do you know the Terry Gillum film Brazil? I haven't seen it. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. It's it's a it's the perfect example if I can detour for a second. It's a perfect yeah, perfect example of people doing this because Brazil, futuristic dystopian, it's a really really great film if you like. It's it's very um Monty Python-esque, but, like, dark. Huh. Um, very good. But the original UK ending is very dark, very bleak, um, and very, very good because it fits. It's kind of Brave New World-esque where you're like, well, nothing changed. Cool. <laughs> um, and then they tried it in America, and American audiences were like, absolutely not. No, yeah. no, no. So they had to change it to this contrived saccharine bullshit hero saves the day i think they literally drive off into the sunset <laughs> so bad it's so bad and i hated that because i want a bleak especially for a futuristic dystopian sort of thing i like having a bleak ending bleak doesn't have to mean hopeless right it doesn't have to mean like fuck humans but it's 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 dark i right. like dark yeah dark is good i mean dark how can you how can you know what the light is unless you've experienced the dark? Yeah. And I can think of a handful of stories where the ending really stayed as bleak as the story and really did it. For, like 1984 is a good example. Mm-hmm. And also, um, and this is very different, but I'm a huge fan of The Dark Tower by Stephen King. Have you read that? I read that. I really need Oof. to. I know. Yeah. Good Lord. That is a journey. <laughs> it's very uneven. Uh, book two is the best out of seven. Um, in my opinion, book two just like completely blew me away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very the ending is very divisive, and I thought the ending was fucking awesome. I and love that's divisive all say. endings. Yeah, I, that's yeah. it's hard talking about this because I'm like you have to. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you that. But. Um, oh shit, I forgot what I was going to say. Why is it so bad? I'm out. I don't know. I don't know. I oh, just, I remember. Uh, so when when you brought this up, this story, you said that you'd been like obsessed with it recently. I've been dying to ask you, how, how did you hear about this? Like, where did this come from? Um, there's a local comic named David Tyler. Uh, goddamn sweetheart. David, what's up? How's your kitty cat? <laughs> <laughs> but he, we were talking about, just talking about um, sci-fi in general, just kind of like shooting the shit before an open mic. And he mentioned uh, this story called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And I'm a very like judge a book by a cover by its cover sort of person. And uh-huh. I was like, I have to read that story. I don't even care. It could be like a historical nonfiction, and I'd be like, I need to read this because it has such a cool name. Yeah. And he sent it to me, and it was just, I was blown away. I was like, this is exactly what I love reading. This is, not all the time. Cannot do stuff like this all the time. But I just became really obsessed with it because it's just, it's rare that I come across a story that's like macabre without being like, heavy-handed but also has that little beat of hope it's like i like and and short i love short stories and too many of them just try to too many short stories try to do this like m night Shyamalan sort of twist at the end because you can do <laughs> it's that a twist yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a twist it's like <laughs> all right we've both seen robot chicken nice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep Woo. but like i i love short stories but that's just it you can do that with short stories more than any other uh 
medium, I think you can have that like, oh, surprise twist. But you don't have to do it with everyone. And I like yeah. this one. It was short. It was an amazing, good narrative arc and no surprise twist ending. A horrifying ending. Yeah. But no, like, oh, my God, they were dead the whole time. Or like, right. oh, my God, Ted is AM. I was like, guys, let's not. <laughs> yeah, I, the story was very, uh, to use a word from my music theory class, is very teleological, where it, like, built out of itself. Where, like, the natural progression of the story was all based off of something that had already been told. Um, as, as you start to move along in, in the actual progression of where it's going. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it is short and only a couple of things happen. Uh, but it's all described so incredibly intensely. And then the ending just feels like the correct landing for where you were going. Yeah. As far as um, sticking with the emotional tone and timbre of the whole thing. There's no wasted words. Like, there's yeah. no fat on that story. There is no, let me give you guys a little backstory. Like, that's not... There's nothing like that. It is perfect. Yeah. It's a very, very good short story. I fucking love this story. And how awesome is the hurricane bird? What is it? I like how it's it's so absurd. Yeah. But you're still you're still on board with it. Like it's it that's the one part of it that like really kind of toes the line of like, wait, what the fuck is going on? But it's so well done. <laughs> yeah, because he he like talks about this weird thing shuffling out of the darkness, and then all of a sudden they're picked up in these horrible winds. And he's like, well, it turns out it was actually Hurricane Bird. You know? <laughs> All right, you know how that goes. That's a thing. And yeah. it's like, but that's something I could see AI creating. And I like yeah. the fact that he's like, where did he get this idea from? Because that's something that I would genuinely wonder about if I was stuck in this hell. I mean, if, he, if you're flying through the air for weeks, because mm-hmm. he talks about that, like they yeah. have no concept of time unless AM wants them to, which I like that juxtaposition of like, we left on a Thursday. We might have been in the air for weeks. Like, it's really, he does a really good job of subtly showing you just how fucked this situation is right. because they can't, like, they don't know. And it builds in such a cool way because it's very, it's very show, don't tell, you know? Like, in the beginning, you don't really know what's going on. Yeah. And it's really hard to pick up on the thread of what's happening because it's kind of bizarre. And it's not until maybe even like a third to halfway through where he has that discussion where uh, Gorister is explaining to Benny who AM is. Yeah. Um, Which that was the one part of the story that I don't like that always feels like. Really? I get that you have to find some way to tell the background, but doing it in a, oh, we're going to tell. Usually it's oftentimes you're telling a child or you're telling someone who's like a little uh, mentally not all there. You're you're being like, they're like, I want to hear the story again. And that to me, that seems like a little kind of a tired way of getting the backstory in. Yeah. Although, to be fair, this was written in 1967. Maybe it wasn't as tired. That's actually a really good point. I keep forgetting that. That's yeah. true. It's this just, story you know holds I mean, up like incredibly this. well. It does. I forget yeah. when it was written. The only reason that that and the fact that they're like, the Cold War right. is still happening or whatever. I was like, no, okay. I do think the internet kind of r- ruins the story a little bit. I think the fact that the internet exists... Um, yes. It makes it a little harder to understand. Like, I had to remember that there was no internet when this was yes. written. Yes, because I was like, why would you build underground right. computers when we, you don't know? Oh, that's right. Back then. And yeah. then all I could think about when I was reading this is, what if the internet wakes up? You know? Like, what if the internet is just like, oh, my God. All of these selfies are making me furious! And then that decides to kill us. interesting, though, because how? Like, at least in this one, there's, like, this sort of physical... I like that it doesn't explain... How it keeps them regenerating. It doesn't. Right. I like that too. That's very. Because now I feel like with my, like, with uh, modern people's, like, understanding of technology, if you really wanted to, you could be like, 
oh, you know what? That's there, here's how you could kill yourself. Here's how you could shut this down. But that's not the point of it. I like that it's right. kind of vague, where it's like he can keep us alive. I don't need to tell you how he just can. Right. Which is something I like in science fiction is when. Sometimes it's fun when you get like super into the canon and you're like, here's this and that and here's how this works. But sometimes it's fun when you're like, in this world, it can happen like that. Yeah. We don't Carry need on. the techno babble sometimes. Yeah. Just by saying there's this, the allied master computer. It's the master computer. Yeah. Do whatever the fuck it wants. Name. Done. Yeah. It can regenerate totally. flesh. Fine. Yeah. All right. And then when uh, AM is inside of Ted's mind and looking at the damage he's caused, I thought that was such a cool way of describing that and kind of giving you an insight into what he's done to their minds. Yeah. The fact that he can just go in at will and like rearrange. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't say like, Oh, he hooked, we forcibly get hooked up to something matrix style. It doesn't, I like that it goes from like these physical consoles, which is indicative of the time to like this sort of like uh, Wi-Fi into your brain. Yeah. And it kind of jumps back and forth without ever explaining like, He's here. No, he's and then you know this sort of thing because it's like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is you, we've lived this life for 107 years. Ted doesn't need to be like. Let me explain to you readers at home because that's not how that's not how the narrative goes. Right, yeah. and it would detract from the the story. Yeah. Also, brain Wi-Fi. Good good idea. Brain. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. Just Patent. Chip that one in yeah. there. <laughs> um, also, this reminded me a lot of The Matrix. I wonder if the the Bukowskis read the story. Almost certainly. Yeah, the idea that... Oh, I was just thinking of Agent Smith's speech in the first movie where he's like touching uh, Lawrence Fishburne's head and like feeling his sweat. And he's like, I loathe humans. Like It reminded me so much of when AM speaks, the one time in the story when he speaks, and he just spews out some hatred for Ted. Oh, my which God. Which I love. And it's... If you're listening to this, which you are, if you're listening to this, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you should. I'm gonna post up a link to this story. You should read it because it's a, it's a really cool experience to read because it has those weird binary code things. And then when AM speaks, it's actually written in a different text, which is really cool. It's written like a red hot neon neon signed pillar, which is how it's described as this <laughs> pillar, the steel pillar into his brain, red hot. It's really really cool. Yeah. So. The talk fields, that's what it's called on the Wikipedia page. Those little um, codes, uh, it's called punch code tape messages. So I'm just going to read from Wikipedia what it says they are, which no one who's listening was able to see, but that's okay. You're going to look it up on my... Um, <laughs> no, we're really smart, guys. Edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> we're brilliant. Very attractive. There's a mound of cocaine and... Fi- I don't know. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> All true. Uh, okay, so Ellison uses an alternating pair of punch code tapes as time breaks, representing AM's talk fields throughout the short story. I read that. I didn't understand it just now, but that's okay. <laughs> the bars are encoded in International Telegraph Alphabet Number 2, a character coding uh, system developed for teletypewriter machines. It's a good one. Yep. I thought you were right about the, the binary thing. Whatever. It, it was It's like binary. Basically, it's like old school binary, I guess, is I how I describe it. The idea of like typed out binary that looks like weird symbols is rad. Yeah, I didn't cool. even realize. I thought those were just beautiful symbols. And then when they're like, yeah, it spells words. Yeah. So uh, the I'll, they're translated here on um, Wikipedia. The first one says, I think, therefore I am. The second one says, cogito ergo sum, which is the Latin for I think, therefore I am, right? Um, and I think those alternate. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. And also, like, the, uh, I think that's something that the architect says in the second Matrix. 
the the cogito ergo sum thing. Really? I'm pretty sure he says that would make sense. It's weird to me that uh, machines would be speaking in Latin, but whatever. Not the point. Carry on. I have to. Okay, I'm gonna look this up right now. Was this story an influence on the Matrix? Look that up. In the meantime, I'm gonna uh, speak a little bit to Roko's Basilisk. We kind of talked about that, which I've never heard of, and I'm really interested in Uh, now. You're like a fountain of sci-fi knowledge. (laughs) It's really exciting for me. (laughs) I'm very excited and turned on by this whole thing. Well, you know what I'm. You know, you know, whatever. (laughs) It's whatever. Uh, So Roko's Basilisk. I'm pretty much gonna read this straight from the Wikipedia page because it's kind of it gets a little confusing. And then you save the people the time of looking it up themselves. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. a really good description of it, um, which is accredited to a man named Jay Rischel. I don't know who that is. Uh, it's described as, this is like the grown-up version of the game, which you just made us lose, and I retweeted, so all my friends lost too. Uh, if you don't know what the game is, do you know what the game is? The rules to the game are that if you think about the game, you just lost it. Uh, and once, there's some other rule, and then once the Queen of England thinks about the game, the game is over. That's all it is. Like, if you think about the game. It's all, like it's you're, that's it. That's all it is. You're hurting my mind. I know. I know. That's why I'm having a really hard time with Roko's Basilisk. If you guys know the game, understanding Roko's Basilisk will be a lot easier. But that's all. It's just something you'd fuck around with with your friends. You'd be like, hey, let's play the game. And then you'd like walk up to them at, in high school at lunch. and be like thinking about the game. And then they go, fuck, I just lost the game. Like that's that's what it is. Basically. It's OK. Dumb. Very dumb. <laughs> but uh. So Roko's Basilisk is a thought experiment about the potential risks involved in developing artificial intelligence. The experiment's premise is that an all-powerful artificial intelligence from the future may retroactively punish those who did not help bring about its existence. Further, merely knowing about the AI incurs the risk of punishment. Hmm. That is the game. That's crazy. But yeah, you see sort yeah, of yeah. the relation? That's starting to like, make sense to me. Yeah, it, had we not... Told you guys about Roko's Basilisk? Basilisk? No. Had you never known about AI? So had you lived your life in AI purgatory, I guess? Is that where unbaptized babies go? Whatever. (laughs) Way too many analogies. I'm pretty sure in the Bible, unbaptized babies go to AI purgatory. I think that's true. (laughs) That's where AM's from. Just a whole bunch of purgatory babies. He's straight out of the Bible. He's very, I remember that in Leviticus, definitely. So basically, if you'd never heard of AI, you were safe from AI destroying you. But because you know about AI and choose not to contribute to it, mm-hmm. AI can retroactively come back and punish you. Wow. Does that make sense? That's a bummer. Yeah. Dude. Shitty. I know. <laughs> okay. Man. So I've, I've been looking this up. I haven't found a direct correlation yet, but I did find an, uh, an article. I don't even know what I'm looking at. It's talking about the Matrix, and it says um, close parallels exist with the sem- between the Matrix and the seminal proto-cyberpunk story by Harlan Ellison from 1968, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. In that story, a military AI that has honeycombed the planet with its underground extensions behaves as an insane god. So we're not the first person to... To, to see this parallel between the two. Cool. Um, and I, I'm going to do some more research later and hopefully maybe find some definitive answers if if it was an influence. I can only assume it was. I hope it was. I, I, hope it was I, I love seeing sci-fi more than any other genre. I love seeing how they influence each other and how they build off of each other. It's so interesting to see. Totally. Like, cause, but that's why I'm sort of like, man, Ellison, why do you get upset when people like 
take you as an influence in their writing because I feel like that's a huge part of science fiction more than other genres yeah. is building off of other writers and other concepts. I think that that has changed recently where people don't care as much anymore because everything's been done. Uh, and by everything's been done, what I mean is that like there's now the internet where like I'm trying to make up a new band name for this new project. Wolf. And everything I come up with, there's already three bands with that name. Yep. And I just can't think of anything that doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, so I think the same is true of stories. There's now so many stories. Like our access to stories is so much greater than it used to be. So the overlap is just going to be insane. I do agree. I do think it's important to cite your sources, which, I mean, that's been a hu- huge issue in comedy lately uh, about the, have you heard anything about the fat Jew? Terrible name. No. The, okay. So the fat Jew, that's his name. That's his, his comedy persona guys is the fat Jew. And he got signed on to, I don't remember the specifics, but he got signed on to like a comedy central deal or something. And the internet exploded because the majority, like 90% of what he posted, he was a big Twitter comedian, stuff like that. He just completely, blatantly, unabashedly stole from other people. He would remove watermarks. He would crop out the the username, everything like that. And what's really cool is there was enough of a backlash that Comedy Central actually dropped him. I th- wow. I, I mean, I don't remember if it was Comedy Central, but all this happened. Trust me on this, guys. But, um, like, it... He he lost everything, and he did come forward, and he's like, from now on, I won't take anyone else's stuff, which it's like, too little, <laughs> too late, man. But it is important now yeah. with the spread of all of this culture, with the spread of stories, like you said, definitely get influence from them. But I think we need to start having, like, in the same way that you cited your sources when you wrote college papers, I feel like you need, like, a influences page at the end of your story and be like, yeah. this is who influenced me. This is not me wholesale stealing it this is me acknowledging that it exists you don't need to come and tell me that this yeah. is what i took it from i i mean that's definitely like the extreme where he is literally ripping people off yes whereas verbatim. in a lot of like i mean i've seen a lot of tv shows where there's episodes of shows that are very similar like episodes of stargate are so similar to episodes of star trek mm-hmm. where it could be plagiarism or it could just be um two people had the same idea at different times in different places. Yeah, huge issue in comedy. Is it parallel thought or is it actual joke stealing? Yeah. And I read this really awesome quote from Steven Spielberg once uh, where he was talking about how ideas are physical and they swirl through the atmosphere and land in people's minds. So sometimes people will have the exact same idea on opposite sides of the world and when he has a great idea, he wants to rush and get it out so that so that he can. And I've experienced this. Like I um I've never like I, I have I've never published anything, but I've done a lot of writing. Uh and I was writing a graphic novel. Um I wrote like five issues and my friend was gonna draw it and it never came to fruition, unfortunately. Okay. But there was a character in it named The Observer who was um a bald, kind of sickly looking guy who was like sitting in front of computer screens and like watching this other person and he was from the future and all this stuff was going on. And then I start watching Fringe. I was going to say, that yeah. sounds like Fringe. Yeah. And like, there's literally a guy who showed up like, wow, that looks just like the drawings that we did for the Observer. And then his name was the Observer. You and know? you're like, God And then he was it. from the future. And like his, the parallels were like uncanny um, to the point where I feel like now me telling that story is, is silly because yeah. it's been told. Especially when it's that close yeah. that your people will be like, okay. And you're like, no, actually, you get these insane parallels where right. you're like, it's just. Yeah, and it's kind of disheartening for me because like, I wrote that story. 
I started working on it five or six years before I saw Fringe. Yeah. Before Fringe even came out. But it doesn't matter, you know? Like, Fringe is the thing that's in the popular consciousness that has come out. So now that story is moot. Or I could just... The rest of it's like, you know, I could try to rewrite. I don't know. I, I am doing so much that, like, sitting down to write a comic I book is not on my plate right now. I think you're pretty busy right now, yeah. <laughs> man. Just slow your roll, all yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You have so much shit going on. You don't need to do a comic book, too. There's, like, so much in the back of my mind. I just want to create An constantly. Overachiever. You know? Jesus Christ. You're all, you're one of the busier people that I know. Ever like, watch, just sit and watch TV? I am super busy. It's actually really, really nice. I was thinking yeah. back. I got done with work today, and I, I seriously went comatose. I went for the <laughs> worst nap of my entire life. And I was just thinking about, like, how excited I was to come to this podcast and then go straight from there, do some stand-up at, at Scratch Deli, go check out the competition at Jai Tai tonight. And I was like, man, I love how busy I am. Even yeah. if I'm not – because you're always creating. I'm always – I'm not always creating like you are. I'm just kind of like always doing stuff, and it's so nice. Well, you're always performing, and performing is a form of creation for sure. You're creating something live in front of other people. That's true. A lot of my, a lot of what I'm doing is performing also, and That's, it's yeah. Maybe, I don't know. Performing is like the payoff for all the stuff that you do. Do you tend to scenes. see like so for you performing? Is that because for me at least my writing style is I write on stage like I. I don't improvising. I don't record my sets. I know that makes me an asshole. I'm the worst. But what I <laughs> I'm do not is, in the comedy world, so I wouldn't know that. I know, I know. But it's you. You record every set. Still can't get over the sound of how much I hate. I hate the sound of my own voice. Well, then you're gonna love listening to this podcast. I'm gonna listen for like three seconds and just shudder and pause, like, and then Ugh. another three. Like, Ugh. 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 I had to watch like submission videos for comedy festivals, and I'm just like. I can't look. I can't. Everything about this is gross. I don't like this. But, um, <laughs> oh, that's so horrible. It's so bad. But I'll I'll get off stage and run to my notebook right away. And anything I remember, I'll keep because my kind of I kind of use a logic of like oh, if it, if I remember it, it's worth keeping. If I don't, it's not. And it usually works out pretty well for me. And I've been kind of I build jokes that way. Um, but that's less. So what are you when you are on stage? Do you feel like you're creating, or do you feel like more of the time that you're on st- stage is more of like, I don't want to say reciting because that sounds canned. No, it's it's a third thing. When I'm on stage, so this has changed a lot since playing with Mugatu, mm-hmm. um, because Mugatu is like rest in peace. <laughs> may may you rest in peace. Oh, don't make me cry. Um, Mugatu is like all about having as much energy and, and charisma on stage as possible, and like oh for sure flying around and being an angelic. You're, you're very thing. high energy. Yeah. yeah. Um. So for me, everything has to be in muscle memory. Like it can't. It, I can't think about what I'm doing at all. Oh. There's literally yeah. no thought about the performance. Or I'm sorry. There's no thought about the music. The only thought is on the performance. The only thought is interacting with the crowd, like expanding my energy out to the people in the crowd and like receiving that back and like having that interplay that is the like the coolest fucking thing in the world you know like that's what i'm doing when i'm on stage and i okay when i do other stuff that i don't know as well like when i when i'm in the tiny baby talk show if i ever have to do any acting it's not my my forte so i'm you know thinking yeah. About what I'm doing. And thinking is the worst possible thing you could do on stage. Never yeah. think on stage. <laughs> don't do it. It's true. Like, really, don't. If I overthink, even when I'm riffing, it's going to just die. I just kind of need to go yeah. just go with the flow. Thinking's the worst. <laughs> like, do you feel like you have this, like, sort of, like, I don't want to say, it's, it's in my mind, I'm equating it to a drag persona where you have this, like, other person oh, that absolutely. you are on stage. Absolutely. Is that, okay, that's kind of based on what you were describing, and that's what it sounds like. Because you're not my performing. Your, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
That makes sense. We all had, like, in Mugatsu, we all had different names for, yeah. for our characters because mm-hmm. we, I would, I was J Thrills in Mugatu. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would talk about going into like J Thrills mode. Like, I'm in full J Thrills mode. And I would it's a, love it's a that. feeling when you let go of your body entirely yeah. and you are something else. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's incredibly like rapturous. I think it's amazing. I was just talking to my, my roommate, Mitch Mitchell, about that, how we so badly wish we could have been born men so that we could be drag queens. Cause like, <laughs> female <laughs> drag is not nearly as fun, but I love the idea of having this like, Person And I understand, and that's why I understand how maybe some comedians will create, like, this persona on stage and be a completely different person or have a stage name, whatever. Because it's I, I think it would be so freeing to put on different clothes and to have a different name and just have this, like, basically this, like, partition in your brain and just mm-hmm. be this other person and just disassociate. Yeah. Just it, disassociate <laughs> from Jesse and just go and go be J-Thrills. And I just think that sounds like so much fun. But I don't have an outlet to do that in. And I'm like, well, you could Man. easily. It's really funny that you say that because I had this exact discussion with someone on the podcast about stage names because you're the first person to come on the show that doesn't have a stage name. Really? Everyone else who's been on, like Johnny Unicorn. Which is funny because I should. I have a very hard name to say and spell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, uh, like Barton is Divatron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Audrey is now Bonnie Quest. I saw that. I saw yeah. the change. I love Bonnie Quest. That's a yeah. dope name. I totally made that up. Really? I'm taking credit for it. I like but it because it rings her. slightly of like Bonnie Vare, Bonnie oh, Quest. That's kind of what it makes me think of, but not in like a uh, hack way. And yeah. like a, it flows beautifully, like as one word almost. So, like yeah, it. we were on a long drive and trying to think of band names, and I, I and that that came out. But then I'm like, well, that should be your name because she was Quest is so she good. was Audrey the Great and really needed a new stage name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but have, so Jesse Mercury is my stage name, you know, like my real name is Jesse Plack and it's been like my solo project is my sci-fi stuff. And it was very difficult for me before that. My solo project was my just acoustic music that I was making. Yeah. It was very difficult for me to market it at all. You know, really hard for me to promote it. Um, even just to put stuff out there and, and say it was done was hard because it was like diary entries. It was like saying, this is me, you know? Yeah. Um, and then when I started doing the sci-fi stuff, I changed my name for that because I wanted it to be a cohesive project. I, I think of it as, um, like to me, Jesse Mercury is almost a brand. So Mm -hmm. it helps me write. It helps me create because I have focus because of that. Whereas before when it's just me, it could be anything. And plus, yeah. And plus I feel like it's easier to put it out there because it's, disassociated like yeah if you get criticism you can kind of shield yourself oh, by do. going <laughs> everyone does yeah but like you can kind of shield it by going they don't like that brand they, it's not that they don't like you yeah. they don't like that brand which is really really interesting because yeah. that's not something you can necessarily do in comedy so much you see people try bless their hearts <laughs> they're just an uptight crowd all right they just i'm too edgy for them all right they they don't like me because i'm a woman which actually does happen and sometimes unfortunately but yes. like it's much harder because you're up there and you're kind of burying your soul up there. So it's kind of nice. Like that's again, why it'd be nice to have a stage name. Cause then you can go, yeah, you didn't like her. And then you go like back into your own body and you're like, yeah, but I'm me now. And I'm, I'm not that. But you know, what's funny is that that's what I thought. Um, but then I haven't had to deal with it because the things I've done under stage names have been much more well-received. Interesting. Yeah. Mugatu in particular was yeah. extremely well received. So popular. Uh, and that was like way outside my comfort zone when we first started because I, I remember the first show I ever played in bondage leather 
I actually said out loud, guys, this is the moment where I'm giving my full body to Mugatu. Like, <laughs> you know, this is now like a, a thing that I'm doing. That must but have been terrifying. It was hard at first. And now I get up on stage and I play like in underwear all the time. I don't give a shit. Oh, yeah, right? I actually prefer it because I feel, I honestly feel like I connect more with the crowd the less clothing I wear on stage. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it helps because you're kind of going up vulnerable. Uh-huh. And once you're vulnerable, you have you can create a more of an emotional connection. Yeah, I totally. Think. There was this movie, I don't remember the name of the movie that I watched when I was young, where this woman wanted to have a serious conversation with a man and she insisted that he take his pants off first. Really? Because uh, because then he would pay closer attention. And I thought that was great. I like that. That's the opposite of I was thinking of the movie Closer, uh, where I think it was like Julia, not Julia Roberts. Maybe it was Julia. Yeah, it was Julia Roberts came home to Clive Owen. And I've only seen this movie once. It is impressive. I remember this. <laughs> but she came home to Clive Owen and he'd just gotten out of the shower and she was acting kind of distant. And he like put clothes on and she's like, why are you putting clothes on? It's bedtime. And he's like, I get the sense that you're about to break up with me and I don't want to be naked. <laughs> and it was so, it was like, oh shit, that was so humanizing. That was so yeah, interesting. Because cool. I could see myself doing the same thing. Just being like, I don't like where this night's going. I'm getting dressed. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So kind of cool. Well, Speaking of uh, speaking of my pre Jesse Mercury self, I wanted to play you a song. I like to end the podcast oh, with, yeah. uh, with playing a song, um, and I wanted to play you something from my back catalog back before I was Jesse Mercury. Ooh, um, because it, this the story um, reminded me of this song. The song is called Leech, uh, and it I don't know. It just I think you'll I think you'll see why it. Okay, there's yeah. like some parallels. So let me play you this song. Yeah, I would love to hear it. Cool. I, it's been so long that I actually have to pull up the lyrics. Miles, <laughs> move it. You're in the way. Get out of here. <laughs> Just put move your it. laptop on top of him. I do that with my cat all the time. <laughs> laptop, cat top. Do you say that every time you do it? No, but I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't move at all. It's the worst. <laughs> all right, let me move my shit around. Get comfortable. God, you're so unprofessional. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Wave my arms to scold you Senseless fight Drape my arm across you When jaded sight Dried and blind No one holds emotion A visible light In time I'll make this my load And take you with me I will be Wave my arms to distract you 
from righteous fight Pennies for a fact Truth is lost in spite It's alright I'll make this my low And take you with me I will be I'll make this my load And take you with me This life is not but show And I'll keep your stage free so talented oh thank you god i loved that song that was beautiful thank you is that online somewhere i would like to like yeah get that get back in my seat get, here. get back in here that was a beautiful song thank you uh it's on my album night song okay. which i released as jesse plack okay when the did last, you release that uh when what year was this you said it was your older stuff so it was 2012 okay so that's the last album i released as jesse plack and then i switched over to jesse mercury right after that so uh, this song is the death of my my old self. Like this really? album is the death of my old okay. self. It's really interesting. Did you know that while you were writing it? Did you write it as kind of a <laughs> uh, what's word eulogy? Well, there is a song on here that is my own funeral march. It's it's called <laughs> it's called Bring Out Your Dead. Um, is that a Monty Python reference? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I had been making music for a long time. I released an album in two thousand ten called Washed In From the Shadows that I thought was going to get me on the map as an mm-hmm. artist. You know, I put my heart and soul into it. I worked on it for three years. I made every note as perfect as I possibly could. Um, but somewhere along the way, I think I lost touch with the emotions of it, maybe. So when I listen to it, I love it, but no one else really connects to it. Interesting. Um, and it's devastating to me. It's still devastating to me. Uh, so it, it just, nobody really liked it. I mean, it wasn't even... Can you take a guess as to why people didn't connect with? I know you said you lost touch with the emotions, but like. That's my guess. Because I think it's great. You know, I I listen to it. This is the one thing I've ever released that has had a review uh, where like someone, I sent it to like a local uh, magazine in San Diego and they reviewed it and they gave it a really bad review. uh, And they said that it was very insular music because I played all the instruments and did all the production. So they felt like there was no other points of view and it really made the music suffer. Okay. Um, but I feel like he that reviewer also said several things that didn't really apply. So I felt like he was reviewing me based off of the album credits and ne- not necessarily a listen. It sounds like it, what it sounds like he's probably read through went, oh, same name for everyone. This is just a big masturbatory. And, yeah. and I understand why they probably would react because they probably get a ton of things like that where someone wrote and produced and did everything themselves. Yeah. But if you're confident in this album, and I trust that you're, you're a very self-aware person, so I'm going to trust that it's not <laughs> just you just circle jerking It's not CD garbage. Being like, oh, like, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're very talented. There are very few people that that have come up to me and, and like said, like I, I liked this album the first time I heard it. I thought it was okay. 
I listened to it a couple more times, and then I fell in love with it, and now it's like one of my favorites. I've heard that a couple, like two or three times from two Okay, good. So I think that it's like one of those things where it's very complex, and I think that you have to give it some listens to get it. Uh, but then this album after that, Night Song, was the reaction to that, which was like simple music that was very emotional and like just really like bass instincts. Yeah. Um, kind of on my path to becoming, you know. I mean, based on Leech, like, like <laughs> Leech was a very, it did feel like a, like a simple song, but very emotional and very easy to yeah. relate to. And yeah. catchy. That I one in like particular, music. sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no, no, I just. Just, you know, telling Keep you saying nice awesome. things about my oh, music. Oh, God, you're great. You're wonderful. <laughs> you know um, what I mean. That song was written about uh, being sick. And it's something I haven't talked about on the podcast at all. But I spent some time uh, <laughs> bedridden, basically. Yeah. For, I spent about a year um, bedridden for – which what ended up being, uh, like, mold exposure because I was living in a moldy house. But I was incredibly ill and uh, was being tested for all these things and – thought it might be like MS or Guillain-Barre or something like that and thought my life was over. And then also had these family members and friends and my girlfriend at the time around all the time to do things for me because my body wasn't functioning because it was just like shutting down from, you know, I, like mold exposure combined with what was eventually diagnosed as uh, like a weird case of fibromyalgia, yeah. which I hate saying out loud because all I can think about is, uh, have you seen like um, that Todd Margaret show with David Cross? No. All I can remember is like him being like pushed by someone softly and him going, ow, my fibromyalgia. <laughs> um, uh, and anyway. your affliction is forever ruined for you. You're like, I'm not that guy, guys. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not that guy. Um, but I wrote this song about feeling like I was just leeching off of everyone in my environment who uh, was coming to do my daily things for me. Because I like there was days where I couldn't walk down the hallway to get to the bathroom. And I had to be like led down the hall oh man i know i sound like a crazy person when i talk about it because it's like fibromyalgia and mold exposure two things that are kind of laughed at yeah yeah, um, yeah but it was very serious you know it was uh it was like they thought i had a viral infection in my brain there's actually some some of my doctors thought that that is what happened and i, I still don't know i don't so know they really so to this day they're still not entirely sure or yeah i mean i've just kind of gone with the fibromyalgia diagnosis because it helped me get back on my feet and yeah i mean you know. it seems like you're doing fine now yeah, so I'm doing part it very of me well. it looks at medicine and stuff and it's like if you're living well now yeah just you, sometimes you don't always need an answer sometimes right. you're like eh. a lot of those things like the cure is the same like eat well exercise and uh get a lot of sleep yeah so that's what I happened do... to me when a few months ago when all my gut flora died they never really found out why yeah and i just you know i went in to see a doctor and he was uh, just the worst person i've ever dealt with I was like, all right, fine, done here. Uh, and I just, I basically was like, okay, these are the foods that I can't eat. I just need to take better care of myself, and I'm fine now. Yeah. Never know what happened, but like 90% of the time, you're not going to drop dead from a tumor because you had a problem and didn't get the exact right diagnosis. So. Right. I'm I'm just very leery of doctors, you know, because like you go to the wrong doctor and they will just really depress you. That's true. And like, uh, like uh, my mom's a dermatologist, so like I see both sides of like the whole doctor thing and I get it I get why a lot of doctors their hands are tied in terms of what they're prescribing and their hands are tied in terms of what they can uh diagnose you with I've also seen the other side where sometimes you people are shitty patients where <laughs> yeah. sometimes some little, especially to a, a dermatologist I'll go in and be like I have a rash my mom will be like have you changed your diet recently I don't know have you changed your laundry detergent recently I don't I don't know hey what's different nothing 
something has to be because <laughs> that's how things change. Yeah. Changes cause mm, anyway. Sorry. I mean, I have been taking a lot of mescaline, but I don't think that's related. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. Side note, uh, apparently yeah. one of the most common funny things that she runs into, and I'm pretty sure this isn't breaking HIPAA to talk about it, is she'll, as a dermatologist, she'll have women come in with rashes like on their side, like on, on their back backside, a few inches below their uh, armpit, basically, around their back, and they'll be like, what is this rash from? And every time she's like, you need a better fitting bra because I'll get these like these really bad rashes from the bra cutting in and people don't respond kindly to that, even though yeah. that's the reason why people are like, that can't, it can't be that simple. And she's like, I'm not calling you names. I'm just saying that go get, go get fitted. Yeah. Takes 30 seconds at Victoria's Secret. They do it all the time. You're fine. So it's amazing how much stuff there is like that in our lives that we don't re recognize, like things that you do every day that are making you feel ill like af after my whole experience i start i became much more self-aware i didn't used to be a very self-aware person mm -hmm. now i have to be in order to you know you're a very healthy normal. person you're very you're one of the healthiest I, people i know i do my best yeah. you're you're one of the healthiest people i know this is something <laughs> no, that we, you are <laughs> this is something we like kind of connected on is that you know everyone else we know is like partying super hard and not taking good care of themselves and and that's cool, you know, in our circle. You do, you, yeah. It's supposed to be cool. Yeah. And I don't think it's that cool. Like, I, I party hard sometimes, you yeah. know, but I know I that I'm going to suffer for in the going next day. hard. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, I mean, if you've seen me on stage in Mugatu, you can tell that I go hard sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. Like, I think that, like, being healthy and uh, productive is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I sound preachy now. I might cut well, all this out. But, but anyway, I, like, me meeting somebody else who was, like, invested in their health and, like, an active I don't, everyday exactly. way. Exactly. What cool. it comes down to is, like, I don't. If I, honestly, if I was one of those people that could stay up three nights in a row on a Coke bender and then run 16 miles the next day and like be productive, maybe I would. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But like I, I, I can't, you know, if I have a hangover, I'm not being productive. I'm not being healthy. I'm, I'm wasting my time. Time is valuable to me. Yeah. So the aftermath of partying and of eating like shit, not taking care of myself isn't worth it. It's yeah. not so much a... You should take care of the body that God gave you. And it's more like, I don't have time to not be healthy. Just, right. I, I need the energy. I need the, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm Basically. Very, I'm very judicious with my partying. I'm like, well, I don't have to work tomorrow. Um, tonight's going to be one of those nights. But I also have more fun a lot of the time if I'm sober. Like, yeah. I really enjoy hanging out with people and remembering it later. Yes. Um, you know. Yes. But I like variety. What What I love about, like, getting drunk sometimes or smoking pot sometimes is feeling different. Like my whole perception of reality is different. And as a yeah. sci-fi nerd, I read into that like so much. I'm just like, wow, everything's and like looks different and sounds different. You Very know? true. That's why I like doing, I like doing uh, hallucinogens for that reason. Cause I'll take like, literally I call them like a vacation where every once in a while I'm like, clear my schedule. I've got a Saturday free. <laughs> I don't have any obligations. Cause it kind of gives me a chance to, Especially for comedy, it's very helpful because it helps me kind of do this paradigm shift where I'm like, all right, I'm looking at the world completely differently now. Yeah. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into this being like, man, it opens up your mind or whatever. But like, it it just kind of helps me do. It's what I call like spring cleaning. Like I take some time <laughs> out of my brain, step out, clean out the old shit, check in with myself. I'm always like, yo, we dope, we dope. Do we have anything we need to talk about? No, we cool. Carry on. <laughs> Quick little conversation and we're good to go. And I really like it for that reason because, yeah, it, it kind of helps you 
view the world a little bit differently, just for a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, you're a fantastic guest. You're like, you're great. <laughs> you're a fantastic host. Oh, thank you. I would love to do this again. I want to watch Brazil with you and then yes. do a podcast about that. That would, that oh, that would be so, I actually, I studied that in school. Really? I, yeah, yeah. I studied, what did you major in? Oh, linguistics. Uh, there was this really <laughs> cool thing. I'm going to just like jerk off about my school for a second. Called You jerk off all you want. Uh, it was <laughs> called that fresh- the noise that, that makes? That's, that's how ladies masturbate. I don't know masturbate. that much about <laughs> female anatomy, apparently. That's why the clit's hard to find. It's very loud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, one of those like things where you turn it and it has the wood inside and it goes like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those party, like... Whatever those are called. Anyway, uh, there's something called freshman studies at my school, and we studied... Uh, so the, the books in it was Stanley Milgram's Obedience to Authority, uh... Einstein's Theory of Relativity, Schwanza's Art of War, Plato's The Republic, and then you analyzed one piece of music, and you analyzed a film, and there were other books. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it was like all of these like classics, like The Republic comes up surprisingly so much. Reading Obedience to Authority was amazing because you understand so much about psychology. Schwanza's Art of War, mostly just cool because of how long ago it was written, very neat. But the the film that we analyzed was Brazil, and I dabbled in film studies while I was in school because it was really mm-hmm. cool. But so I know a ton about that movie, and it's really really interesting, and I definitely like oh, to analyze awesome. it. So we need to find it. It's hard to find, but we'll get it. Oh, I'll find it. You'll download it. That's what I'm going to download. Cut that part. Yeah, I download. will. <laughs> I will use the not yet sentient internet, and I will find <laughs> that movie. Um, Skynet Brazil. Yeah. No. Okay. I was gonna try to. Uh, well, because this episode is very different from anything I've done before where we actually, like, read something, you know? Yeah. This was a much more highbrow episode than what I've done in the past. Really? It did amazing. Well, thank this you. Great. First time podcast, so wow. it was fun. Amazing job. This is fun, right? This is, like, a super fun This thing is super do. fun, yeah. yeah. It started out as a little, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's weird because we're talking to each other, but we're also not. So. Yeah, we're, like, kind of at a 45-degree angle. Yeah, and then, like, sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm going to speak to them. You know, you're doing your thing. I'm going to, I don't yeah. know. And you have fun. to you have to talk as if there's a person in the room who you've never met. Yes, who is, and you who can't. Is mute. <laughs> <laughs> or you can't do like I, I noticed myself like I'm a, I talk with my hands a lot and I'd like do something and I'm like that doesn't no one's gonna know what that was because I'm sitting here being like burr, 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 with my hands, yeah. which you guys couldn't see either. Did something with my hands just then? So <laughs> whatever. Anyway, I also we have to take a picture to post. That's with it, right. And I have a funny idea of what to do, which I won't mention in case you say no. But, um, <laughs> but if I, <laughs> I can say yes, but shake my head no. They'll never know. They'll yeah. never know. <laughs> well, if you see a funny image that goes with this podcast, then she said yes. All right, <laughs> she's saying yes. And if not, then you'll have no idea what I'm talking about because I will have cut this out. <laughs> So, Meta. Um, thank you so much. Uh, you've been a fantastic guest. We'll do this again. For sure. Future. Thank you so much awesome. for having me, Jesse. It's been a blast. Yeah. All right. Cool. Podcast out. <laughs> yeah.